welcome to Funny Business, a podcast for free thinkers. I'm Lockie Bradford. And I'm Robbie Hicks. On today's episode, we sit down with group CEO of Overdose Digital, Todd Welling. What do you think of Todd, Lock? Oh, what a treat. What an absolute pleasure to sit down with a great man and pick his brain about pretty much everything. How smart and switched, switched on is he in the world of digital? Mate, I don't think there's anyone smarter. I don't know. The way he's organizing his business with a flat structure and how they've scaled and grown since, since launch. I don't know. I couldn't believe it was like three years. You know what I mean? Like you expect something like that to be take way longer, but yeah, this guy's hyper growth, um, doing some amazing things and man, I can't believe some of the stories that he told. So tune in, listen in and let us know what you think. How did it all start at Overdose Digital? How did it all happen? Um, yeah, so I used to um, own and run what we refer to as an SI. Um, so pretty much a classic design and build agency. Um, and me and my business partner at the time had a bit of a different vision on where we wanted the company to go. And um, I was just keen for a fresh start and a bit of a break. Um, we'd grown that out to a pretty successful company. Um, they're still going real strong now. Um, the, I then kind of chilled out for probably three to four months and looked at the world and looked at um, what I wanted to be doing you know, that nice kind of life reset of where your individual and personal passions um, were set. And we started off Overdose originally as a kind of a digital director for hire, right? So I was kind of just going in with clients, helping them with transformation. Um, so this was probably four and a half, five years back now. Um, a few guys who I knew in the industry, a couple of, you know, chairmen, CEOs and stuff said, get in here, show us what to do. Um, so we were doing that for sort of uh, 12 to 18 months and um, then my restraints of trade expired from where I was going previously. And we were asked by several of those clients said, well, you know, instead of being this small kind of closeted, um, high impact, high intensity group, can you kind of flip into doing some execution for us and actually make shit happen as opposed to telling us where to go and what to do. Um, so, we then quickly scaled out from a team of sort of six that were kind of just doing design and consultancy work to actually going into the whole platform delivery. And we sat down as a group of leaders and said, well, look, here, here's a opportunity. The market was ripe. And this was, you know, three years ago, pre COVID before e-commerce went absolutely bananas. Um, and we wrote a whole new, well, we didn't write a business plan. We talked about a business plan and drank over a business plan, but we, we saw an opportunity to, build something um, truly world-class. And we thought coming from New Zealand gave us a really interesting take on the world. Um, we wanted to build the world's leading independently management owned e-commerce consultancy. Um, so we aren't the agency that kind of stumbled upon a gold seam and did all right. We're the agency that was a consultancy that kicked off and then we refactored where we were going and decided to build something big. So, um, you know, a lot of people ask me, where does the growth come from? I actually think growth is a, it's not even a mindset. I think it's actually a pure decision and you decide to grow. Um, you decide to throw every dollar back in. Um, you decide to go and replace yourself in your current role and go and hunt out new, new territories. You decide to reach out to people that are way beyond your reach in terms of client sets, right? Um, and it's it's that mental process of saying, look, we're gonna go and do this. We're gonna take on the world and go super hard at um, what we're doing. Um, one of the things we did really well through that process is understanding how to grow though, right? So, um, Overdose is this weird company where we have this thing called a federated business model, which basically means that we've broken up kind of like a fucking Domino's franchise, right? You've, you've kind of sliced up territories, right? Um, and, and what we believed was the very best agency that people wanted was the combination of all the cool shit you get from a small hustle in your face, aggressive agency, but with all the cool things that come from a big agency, right? A big network, which was, you're de-risking, you've got a lot of developers, you can always backfill, 
Um, you can introduce people into new markets. Um, you've got breadth of capability sets and, and that depth, right? So we always talk about our growth being in three dimensions. We've got depth of capability, breadth of service, and then kind of your Z axis of geography, right? Um, so what we decided through there was myself and Ryan, who were the founders, we decided to aggressively dilute ourselves. We said, well, look, if we want the best in breed people to come on this journey with us, we need to cut everyone in on that journey. Um, and where we wanted to build these sort of you know, 30 to 50 man agencies in every city um, globally, I guess, um, it was regional at, at, at the time, that we were very happy to cut those people in. So we sit here now, we've got around 17 to 18 shareholders in, in, in the business now. Um, so there's lots of people who own between sort of one and 5%. Sorry, I'm trying to juggle pencils. Um, and that's kind of been one of the keys to our success. Whereas most traditional shops, it's about holding everything you've possibly got and then, you know, trying to squeeze the best margin for yourself out at an exit point. We said, well, let's not talk about exits. Let's talk about growth. Let's talk about building something which is sustainable, where everyone shares in the upside. Um, so it really is a meritocracy in that sense. Um, and yeah, that, that, that's sort of how we got to where we are now. Um, so we've gone in like the past three years from that team of six or seven guys to I think about 230 staff now around the world. That's um, got a good team um, up and running in New York, which is one of our highest growth areas now. Just opened up in LA. Just stuck our first boots on the ground in Berlin. So Germany, um, we think is one of the best markets that we can target at the moment. We've got a a real point of difference in that market. Um, and we'll be up and running in the UK and Ireland um, very early next year as well. Um, so yeah, it's all gangbusters really. Look at that, big things coming. Mm. Oh look, we think that we're only sort of about 25% of where we wanna be. We see the opportunity to build out a, probably a thousand man crew. Um, and that federated model and the investment we've made in that and that structure it's really replicable, right? So what we do is when we enter into new markets, you either go and find an absolute weapon on the ground and say, right, this is your territory, go hunt. Or if we're going into a whole new region, we'll go and do a, just a, you call it an acquisition, it's really a merger, right? Because um, uh, we don't go and pay oodles of cash like a big network does, you know, we have no investors, right? Um, all the cash we have is just just our margin and that gets thrown thrown back in to deliver growth so what we're about is finding that right agency that kind of is at that three four five year hurdle where they've gone right i've grown out to 15 20 guys i now see value in being part of a larger group um, my asset becomes infinitely more valuable as part of a bigger group than it does independently um, and so all we do is a one-for-one -one equity swap with those guys. So we see that growth opportunity for those guys to, to, to come in. And because we're just building these pockets of 30 to 50 guys, you can keep doing these, right? Um, it's not like you've got this one massive machine. We've actually got lots of little villages um, and it's really potent and really powerful and, and, and clients love it. They, they just love the, the localized attention, but then they get the de-risking of something that's got some, some global props on it as well. That's a cool model. How important is it to, in the rapid growth that you guys have gone through, is finding the right people to bring into the team? Oh, dude, look, look people is everything, right? So, um, and when we find those people, we lock them in with equity, right? So, um, everyone wants to be an entrepreneur now, right? So, one of your biggest risks in running an agency shop is actually that your talent uh, kind of splinters off and they start their own shops and what you'll have seen in in in, in the markets in recent years um forget e-commerce but if you just look at the natural media space right the amount of talent that has fallen out of your your publicists your dentists your wpps these big massive networks where they attract the best talent because they pay the best price and um you know when i was growing up if you had the word ogilvy on your cv you were the don you know um and that's very attractive to those people but they also get to that point in their mid thirties, late thirties, early forties, where they found a bit of financial freedom and they're willing to take that punt. And what's really interesting is that there used to be this dynamic, which was, you know, 
Todd from Overdose has a bigger voice than just Todd, right? And if it was Dave from Ogilvy, he has a bigger voice. But what's happened is, is that his individual and independent voice has risen. And because these large corporates have understood that the talent isn't actually the macro, the talent is the individual, right? So when these in individuals kind of splinter away and they start their, their own shops, you see lots of these businesses that spin up into, you know, 15, 20 man shops very, very quickly um, because the clients want the talent. The clients don't really care as much today that it's done by a large global network. They care what is the individual working on that piece. Now there's a balance there, you know, when, when you're working with a listed company and you're running through procurement, um, you know, if, if you're bringing in a client that doubles the size of your business, that's a really hard deal to close because a good procurement manager will see that risk and they'll go, eh, maybe not. Um, but if you're working with independence where there is a personal relationship and trust, they'll move that, that business over. Um, so I think that's why you'll see in the markets now, you've got a lot of your large networks are starting to break those agencies back up again now, right? Because they realize that attitude and style and hubris that comes from small and, and, and indie wins through. But what you've got on the other side is you've got people like Overdose um, and even people like S4 Capitals, right? That are actually rolling together a, a lot of those indies because they've started from that culture point, right? So I think it's really hard for these global networks to break that culture back down, reset expectations with clients and then roll it back up again. Um, you know, I, I think if I think S4 is a really good example of that, of where if you look at Sorrel that was running WPP, he couldn't invoke that culture that he's managed to invoke at S4, right? Um, and it's basically from where you start from. And history and legacy is really hard to, you know, break when you've got big boards and you've got stock prices and you can't just, you know, say, right, we're going to pause all margin for three years and, and reset this business. I've got a stock price to look after, right? So I need to make these small, accurate, tactical moves. Um, so yeah, man, look, pe people are absolutely everything to us. And even when we're going through um, doing acquisitions, we look at it as if we're acquiring the entrepreneurial founders rather than acquiring a business, right? So I would say, 80% of our conversation is about that individual. And it's about, right, you've got a 10 man team. The vision here is to grow that territory out to 50 guys. Does that individual have the passion, the drive and the desire? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So we've looked at banging companies where it's an absolute shoe in from a financial perspective to do the acquisition. You then go and speak to the founder and he's like, do you know what, this is great. I'm now gonna take eight weeks holiday. You can just keep cranking the margin. It's like. No, 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 we're doing this merger to grow. We're not doing this merger because we want to roll it in, in, into our bottom line. Um, so finding that combination of, it's that real tough crossroads of enough experience, enough bruises, enough battle scars. Um, you know, like we speak to some agencies where they're run by 23, 24, 25 year olds. They've got no bruises. They've never seen failure. They've never lost a client. And there's some of those guys say, do you know what? This kid's got it and, and we're, we're going to take the pun. We see others where it's a 45-year-old guy and he's running a great agency, but he's actually really tired, you know, and, and he's looking to actually slow down. So we're looking for that balance of energy, capability, culture, hustle, attitude. And you can never look at it from the, the book's perspective. The books are important, but it's the individual which uh, manifests all of our success, man. Love that. Oh, mate, you're just, you're preaching what we always say. It's the meaningful connections. It's, it's you deal with people. Everything that you deal with is people. It's, it's nothing more. It's nothing less, really. You just, you need the ability to form that connection and that trust and the rest is history. That's insane, man. It's, that flows through to all your client relationships as well, right? That basic integrity, honesty, speaking your mind, being pretty blunt. Um, you know, it runs all the way through. Um, doesn't fit for everyone though, man, you know, yeah. um, you know, there's, there's, there's times where we walk into, especially as we've gone up the food chain and we speak to much more larger, you know, SAP 500 kind, kind, kind of companies. There's a lot of those guys that go, whoa, can you just stop fucking challenging everything that we're thinking about and just, and just do the bloody work? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And no, you know, um, so, you know, I, I think that's also true where you've got to pick where you add value in the market, right? You know, yeah. If you're, if you're in a scenario where, where we're pitching against a like for like agency, sorry, you're doing a piece of work and the only way you're being validated on the work is a like for like. So if it's a traditional RFP, 
where they won't let you speak to them. They won't let you go through a, a depth of building a relationship and all they want is pure delivery. We've learned that we're probably not the best guys for that, right? We need to be working with those clients that genuinely want a different attitude. Yeah. I guess that's something I really want to touch on. There's a difference between, there's a lot of talk around agencies or good agencies, bad agencies, ones that will say they're going to do things and they just run socials and they don't get much bang for their buck. What's the difference between like, what's an anti-agency? That's how you guys brand yourself at Overdose. What's an, give us a, give us a rundown. Yeah. So when we first started the company, we, um, we actually didn't know what the hell we did. Um, we were just kind of turning up and freestyling it. Um, and when Ryan and I, um, first put together that website, we had to put up a website and you're supposed to put all your clients and all your portfolios and all, and all this kind of stuff. And we said, well, we don't really know what we do do. So let's put what we don't do. Um, and that homepage we've got up and running now of like, um, was just us talking shit um, of, right, what don't we know? It's like, right, I don't know the kernels and seven spices, you know? Um, and so what came from there was that we bred this attitude of thinking in the negative spaces right? So you had everyone was running in this singular direction of this is what a shape of an organization is supposed to look like. This is how you're supposed to communicate. You're supposed to write white papers. Um, you're supposed to have fancy spinning dials of we increased ROAS by a million percent, right? We're like, look, it's just all bullshit. It's just the best version of a lie that anyone comes up with. Um, so we'd agreed up front that we would never fall into those spaces. And we wanted to kind of exist in the shadows we really like that um we used to you, you you boys are a bit too young but when i was a kid we used to watch the a-team right and it was that you know that ba barackers and hannibal and you know their, their catch line was if you can find them these guys will come and fix all all, all your problems so we liked living in the shadows um we liked going very contrarian in our view of the markets and fundamentally as a you know as a young startup with just a couple of guys you had to find a way to get heard in market, right? So um, anti-agency was actually a name that was given to us by one of our first clients that was like, I love you guys. You're like an anti-agency agency, right? Um, and that you don't just do what you've asked me to do. Um, we do, we have this concept called right sizing in the business, right? Which is that we have to sell the right product for the right price for the right client at the right time, right? And it has to be something that they can use. Whereas old school agency thinking was all about wallet share, right? And it was sell as much as you can, as early as you can in that relationship. I'm like, well, if we can flip that and say economically, if we looked at a three year tenure of client relationships, do we have to gouge the client aggressively up front, right? Because typical agency returns is kind of slowly diminishing kind of income. I'm like, well, if we can kind of flatline that and we can base all of our value on your integrity, your honesty, but we also didn't want to be, you know, and you guys will see this on Facebook, the guys that are kind of banging placards and um, look, there's a lot of snake oil in, in, in our market, but we didn't want to be the guys that were just screaming and pointing fingers at the snake oil. We wanted to give a, a valid reason to come and work with us. Um, so we don't talk, you know, whenever we go and pitch, there's no negativity or the world's broken or this system's wrong. It's just, this is how we want to do it. And it turned out that that was against the normal of how everyone else in market positioned it. Um, in fact, it worked so well because what it meant was that in our very early stages, we always got in as the underdog, right? Which was, we're going to do a traditional RFP. We're going to have these three guys. And we found these weird couple of dudes from overdose that we just want to kind of have in the mix. And then it just took a couple of them to go, do you know what? I'm going to take the punt. Um, and then as soon as people started taking the punt, um, now so many of the things that we do in terms of presenting ourselves to the world people have started to clone those as, as well so um you know just in terms of jesus just even how we posted on on linkedin right like no one had aggressively used linkedin for that you know um there was a way you had to do it you closed the client you did the work and then you said here's the piece of work and here's the white paper we said sod that we, we need something to talk about these guys just, just just signed a contract tag everyone right and and we just hammered all all the people on there and you had people high-fiving you and it led to some lead gen off the back of there um well like one of the first agencies that really pumped instagram like five years ago um and you know there's only about ten thousand people that, that that followers on there but we have got 
we have won work off of the back of people DMing us on Instagram because uh, you're getting into their normal kind of day-to-day -day operating. Um, so yeah, um, I don't think anti-agency is a is a thing that you can kind of bundle up. It's more of just a a mindset and an attitude. Um, we have seen, you know, I've, I've seen like three or four agencies in the US start to use the phrase. We think we were the first, don't really care or no. Um, I don't know, maybe we'll stick with it. Um, I guess one of, our, one of our reasons for holding it there is that our biggest danger right now, Rob, is that we become what we set out to break, right? That's genuinely our biggest struggle now. It's with over 200 staff, you start to look and quack like a large agency. Do you know what I mean? Um, and you start falling into these habits of, talking about your biggest clients and suddenly you start rolling out Samsungs and you've got, uh, you know, people like Adobe asking you to come and do white papers and stuff like that. Um, and turning up at events and doing big stands. And we're like, we are always the guys that hired the bar next door to the event. We weren't the guys that did the stand. Right. Um, like that. And yeah, so look, there's a bit of it where you build the certain size of machine. So you have to start playing, not completely in the shadows and conform to some of it but we still resist and pull ourselves back into that kind of contrarian view of the world. Um, is it, has that been hard? It's real hard, man. But um, um, the temptation is always there, right? And there is constant offers of, um, you know, do you want to be on CIO of the year award? God, I, you know, I'd, I'd hate to see our brand in, in, in there, but when we kind of go and pick up, you know, like we, we picked up um, the Adobe partner of the year and we were really kind of, confused about it internally because we were the guys that shouldn't have won it but we did win it and it's like right so how do you play that back to the market do you go and do traditional pr do you try and get on stuff um or do you just kind of put it out there and just be blase about it don't know because you've got to kind of find some way to monetize it as well um so yeah it is tough man but um look i turn up in a hoodie and, and a baseball cap to go and do million dollar pitches you know it's who we are it's how we roll um if we don't fit, we don't fit. That's genuinely okay. Um, and there is, honestly, there is, you know, six or seven other agencies in region that do genuinely banging work that we do. And they are a better fit sometimes for some clients. Um, and you just got to know when to pick it and have faith and truth in yourself that you don't have to win every deal, you know? So, um, but yeah, it is hard, man, because um, we wear those losses real hard. You know, we close, when, when, when we're pitching, we're closing at around 75%, right? So it's a pretty high, high close rate. But I'd say that we, we wear the 25% kind of 4X that you wear, that you wear the wins. Um, and I guess there's sort of like that winning attitude of where you kind of want everything. Um, but you, you know in your heart of hearts that everything would break you. Um, and there's clients that you shouldn't win and that you shouldn't pitch for, but you're still bloody tempted. That'd be a constant battle. Yeah, it would be a constant battle, man. And, and tossing up in your head, like, how do you monetize that good news? And when you're not like that, that's such a hard thing to sort of, yeah, how are you going to do that? Like, me and Rob have chats about that all the time. Like, in a time of a pandemic, we've got some good news rolling in. How are we going to do it? It's just different things on how you're going to, you know, put it out in the market and represent yourself, I suppose. It can, can never be a bad thing when you win an awards, though. Yeah. Surely. Um, I think it can be. Actually, I think what um, one of your biggest dangers is that you get lackadaisical on it and you think you've actually cracked it. Um, what we've tried to breed internally is like, you know, I think that there's probably lots of uh, old NRL adages of it's real hard to win two in a row, you know. Um, and if you can do the three-peat, that's really smashing it. So um, I think it's just that risk of being lackadaisical, but it's my job to make sure that all the crew stay on point, man. How do you bring, so when you're talking about your business model with the federated, like federated little states going on everywhere, how do you make sure that culture's aligned as you get continue to grow? So if you guys do go hit that thousand head mark of your company, how do you make sure that, like, is there a home base? Do you do big catch-ups? Like, how do you keep everyone in touch? Yeah, well, the first one comes back to people, 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 right? So um, you've got to have the right leaders in each of those businesses. I'd say that each of our offices, you know, we're running eight offices, I think now. Um, the, they are probably about 70% similar across each one of those offices. 
but there's a 30% nuance, which is always led by that founder as well. Um, so, you know, if you're, if you're dealing with the boys in New Zealand, you know, geez, 4pm on a Friday, slacks off, drinks are on, right? Um, you're dealing with a team up in Singapore and they're much more of a, you know, a, a lunchtime coffee culture. Do you know what I mean? Um, we've got offices where um, there's a younger demographic and offices where there's no older demographic. Um, but I think that aligning yourself with those leaders at the top level ensures that there is always some level of continuity there. So we do allow it to be lots of pockets of culture. Um, we use Slack a hell of a lot. You know, Slack is basically everything to us um, in terms of the, the, those comms. So there are channels which are broken up by, by offices and then there's an all hands channel, which is really active. Um, we're always sharing that good news amongst people. Um, we are hyper transparent with our staff on the economics of the business. So we show them every dollar that's coming in and out of, of, of the business and, and we'll do that at a quarterly or a six monthly event and we'll share which markets we're looking to go into, who we're looking to merge with, what are the opportunities like, um, how are the numbers rolling? Because, you know, what keeps me awake at night actually isn't our P&L. It's what, what keeps me awake at night is being responsible for 230 families and, you know, their partners and kids and, and their mortgages. So, you know, um, it's no longer a all-in attitude on every single move. You kind of got to have a bit more restraint as a leader now, right? Um, so these guys have been crazy enough to invest their careers with us. Um, so it's only right that we show them the vision and growth of the company that's there. Um, and I think it also becomes pretty infectious, that culture, right? Is that if you've got guys that are busting their ass all the time to make this thing work, which is insanely humbling, it does become infectious. Um, and, and, and the word we, we talk about every day will come up in conversation is accountability. And it's that personal accountability of keeping your shit together, getting stuff done, deliver, deliver, deliver. Um, it's not about perfection, it's about progress. Now that's the world that we live in. You know, you haven't got to deliver an, an 11 out of 10 every day. You know, it's a solid eight every single day, but pushing, pushing, pushing. Um, I think it breeds that great culture. Um, the other thing we found is that when you've got momentum, keeping that momentum keeps everyone, everyone's eyes on the future price. I think when it all slows down and you lose a couple of clients and you know, someone jumps off to go and work for another shop, um, people start looking around, right? But if you can keep the speed and the direction, and as a leadership team, we're really punchy and aggressive as well. I think it forces culture into the business because you're just too busy to worry about anything else. Do you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, lots of meetups, dude. Um, you know, Friday afternoons, each of the offices all jump on Zoom, even in lockdown, and we'll have drinks and quizzes, and um, it's a pretty loose culture. Um, once a year, the guys all get to meme roast me on my birthday. So I just got loads of um, <laughs> one day only memes coming in. Comedy yeah, Central star. One day only. Yeah, they get. Um, I think it's. I think it's. It's. It's more like the purge, Lachlan, than Comedy Central. <laughs> <laughs> the truth comes out on Purge Day. Um, what are you saying about like attracting talent and keeping that talent? Um, the importance of information dissemination. Obviously, when you've got smart people and you're working with them, they need to know the end goal and the vision as well. And like you mentioned, um, the information dissemination and making sure everyone knows, especially the economic side and the financial side, so everyone's got a well-rounded view of what's going on and, and um, how you're tracking. So you're saying that's, that's probably one of the most important things in keeping the team together? I'd say so, man. Yeah, just that um, complete transparency. Yep, yeah, complete transparency. And also a really flat culture, you know, yeah. um, that flat organizational structure of where everyone is open, every door is constantly open. Um, you can hit us up, you can have our, our, our point of view, but we also invite you to share your point of view as well. Um, like it's almost a disciplinary action if you choose not to share a, a perspective, you know. Um, we don't want you shutting up and just kind of following form. We want you agitating. We want you finding new, new opportunities. That's why we got to where we are was, you know, that, I hate the word disruption, but, you know, just agitating things, right? Um, looking at things through a different lens. Um, and I think if you give people that forum, um, they don't want to go and work anywhere else, right? And as long as you pay people well, um, they're in a culture they want, they've got the right work-life balance. 
and it's in our interest to give people the right work-life balance because they do their best work and we get the best outcomes as well so it's kind of dumb to not give people what they want because you you kind of just drive them away anyway um so yeah look, look we just do um i think a lot of people kind of you know they look at over those what's the equation how have you done it it's like it genuinely wasn't one man right we just did what we felt was right and treated people how we wanted to be treated you know um and i've built this company because it's the place where i want to work kind of selfishly but if it's a place where i want to work you kind of hope that other people will want to kind of hang with you as well um so look it is super professional when it comes to the um delivery side and we've got you know as you can imagine insane amounts of, of work on but if you're fundamentally not enjoying it and not pumped for the collective and the individual growth that you're getting from it, then it's not the right place, you know? Um, but if, you know, we've had people, you know, um, that have joined us that have come from larger corporate backgrounds and have really struggled with us, man, really struggled with us. Cause they're like, you know, what's my job title in 18 months time. If that's the one thing you're worried about. It's not the right shop. Do you know what I mean? Um, you know, and guys, guys that are, you know, that are, worrying and comparing salaries am i earning two grand more or less than that person next to me and it's like look we talk about it once a year we've agreed it you're hitting all your targets you're going to get a whacking pay rise next year keep pushing keep pushing you know um and those people that look to sort of play the system and gamify it um and hey man look i, I come from an investment banking background and i played that ladder right um, and you played every job title on the rung up until you suddenly got to the top and you realized it was a completely fruitless game, right? It was completely pointless. Um, and you got to this position of a different job title, but you were still underpaid for what you were doing because you were so enamored with what your LinkedIn profile was going to be. Um, so we always talk about, you know, um, it's a journey. It's not a destination. And you've got to enjoy that, that journey. Um, there is no end game for us. You know, we've got targets, but each time we hit one, we just move them out again. Right. Um, so you've got to enjoy the journey that's there, man. And um, I think that most of our guys are really pumped on it. You know, um, and we're lucky that we have very, very, very low attrition rates of stuff. Um, yeah. E even though obviously, as you can imagine, they get hit up daily, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. Um, but, as long as yeah, as I always say, as long as you treat people well, they're doing work they want to do, they're paid fairly, um, they have no ambition to leave, you know, because um, every one of them has worked somewhere else where they didn't enjoy it and they had seen that culture that didn't give them the life nourishment that they needed. So, um, why would you go anywhere else? Hundred percent. I think companies got to realise too about just wastage you lose talent. It's not just the cost of losing that person or not maximizing the potential that they had in their organization. It's what does it cost to, out, um, to try and fill the role again, upskill that person, onboard them, um, and then bring them up to speed on what they need to do and to execute the job. So it's like, you just keep them happy in the first place and help them out with their work-life balance, treat them like a real human. You're going to get better results. You're going to have a more productive, happy person working for you rather than someone who's got one eye out the door. Yeah, man. I, I reckon when you have to replace a member of staff, you probably lose about six months worth of salary in terms of value as a business, you know, just in, you know, the eight weeks notice period where performance nosedives, the cost of recruitment, um, the attention drag it places on your leadership team, the disruption it causes in moving clients around, you'll probably lose one client off the back of that. Do you know what I mean? Cause they just love that dude. Um, and then you've got to rehire that person, as you say, and reintegrate them. It's crazy expensive. Crazy expensive. Yeah. Just get, get it right from the start, mate. Onboard get properly, it. get it right from the start. Bang on. Treat people like people. That's it. It's pretty simple. Can we, can we touch on the actual process? I know I've, I listened to something else earlier today talking about data-driven design and the importance of like your UX capability. Do you want to touch on how um, the process at Overdose Digital works? Yeah, so... As we grew out the business um, and we worked out what the hell this business was, um, we, we fell into a place of doing quite a lot of creative, creative work, right? Design creative work. Um, so Ryan, my co-founder, is our chief experience officer. He's um, skater design boy through and through, um, probably broken every bone in his body. Um, and we started getting into doing brand and content and packaging, like, you know, we've design packaging for two of our clients before and we quickly learned that it wasn't where we actually added much value um, and it sort of started getting into that analog space 
and where it became super subjective as to whether that was where we wanted to be. Um, sorry, whether that was where the client wanted to be. Um, and we realized that as a business, we were slowly narrowing in on this concept, which is being outcome orientated. Okay, so everything that we do across all six pillars of the business is focused on what is the fiscal outcome for our client. And when you're getting to the subjective spaces, that's really hard, right? It's really hard. It's like, did that Instagram story work better because of the content or because we promoted it or because we posted it at a better time, right? So we, we honed in everything to say, look, let's focus on the binary parts that we can control. Um, so where we know that fundamentally we turned this dial and that happened. So we then looked at how do we do that in a um, design capability. So we changed our design from being, instead of a group of guys that turn up with mood boards and inspirations and uh, Pantone charts, we said, let's look at it from the arse end and look at this from a conversion business outcome space first. So before we do any design, we do a ton of market research. Okay, so that'd be looking at all of your competitors in the market, and that's understanding where are they garnering their traffic from? It's like, right, these guys are garnering all their traffic from organic search, right? So we need to design around those consumer journeys, right? So you're breaking down those core consumer journeys. You're then looking at it from a pure analytics perspective of where you're going into their current site and saying, where are your current assets, right? Where are people exiting the page? Where are people entering your site? Um, which of these consumer journeys you currently have actually delivers revenue and margin for the business? We take those pieces together. Um, we then blend that with understanding your brand. So we expect every brand that comes to us comes with their brand guidelines. Um, they come with their current campaigns. And our attitude towards them is, it's our job to translate your brand into a revenue generating asset, okay? We're not gonna reinterpret your brand. We're going to leverage the brand that's already there, okay? Um, where it goes wrong and, and that's that's also why we work with very few startups as well because very few startups tend to have that brand equity that's already there and we found we were really bloody good at this which was taking existing brand equity and taking it from a two percent of net revenue up to a 20 percent of, of net revenue understanding that consumer journey understanding the assets you've got and remonetizing that as well so when we design anything our designers have to explain why I'm designing it that way, and what is the outcome I'm expecting from that. Now that can get quite agitating for some clients, right? Because they're like, I just want it to flash, right? Um, I want it to spin when, when, when you click on it. It's like, no, you're not having it, right? <laughs> what we've also seen through that process is that um, website design, especially in an e-commerce world, three or four years ago was actually very experiential, right? Which was, you know, people were doing you know, lookbooks and parallax scrolls and hotspots and hovers and, you know, really quirky, funky shit because the experience was the brand, right? Um, you know, if you, look, if you look back at some of the old fashion sites, um, do you remember um, Essence with no E at the front, S-Sense? It's like an American brand that had the hardest to use e-commerce website, right? But was brought to us as, I want something like this because it was weird and kooky and out there and every fashion brand wanted that. What's happened over the past sort of, you know, three or four years is that as social has evolved and you can do so much more through social now, um, not just posting pictures on your Instagram, but you've got your reels and your stories and your Pinterests and, um, you know, quick articles. Um, what's happened there is that the actual experience, the actual brand engagement, and I think actually the psychology of conversion has moved away from the actual website itself, right? So when you go, and you guys jump on Supreme to go and buy, you know, some, some new hats, you've actually mentally already converted with that brand and you've converted with it through that influence. So what that means is that the consumer experience you want when you come onto that site is actually much more transactional, right? I want to be able to find what I want really quickly and I want to be able to buy it and check it out and get my discount, all those things super, super fast. Um, so that was a bit of a transition there of coaching brands through, you don't need weird funky shit on your website. You actually need stuff which is personalized, um, that is kind of codified that you understand, you know, your cart is always top right, you know. I know that this is how I filter, right. There's just standard practices in, in, in there. So a lot of it is actually designing out, Rob, 
if that makes sense, mm -hmm. right? So um, it's it's taking taking sets of, you know, and, and quite often we get broad sets of designs where they've gone to a big network and they've had these designs done. It's like, look, I know that looks sexy, but I can guarantee you, you won't make money off of those solutions, right? Um, no one wants their cart in the bottom left-hand corner, you know, which is covered by your palm when you're holding a mobile, right? So it's that balance of understanding the consumer, their journey, the data, and then basically e-commerce practices, right? Um, and so that's how we, we design websites that generate a lot of money, basically because we understand how they're being used. Um, and that's the, I guess the old, the old phrase is con consumer centricity, isn't it Rob? Um, as opposed to where we're just trying to say, look, don't design what you want as a brand, design what the customer actually needs. I love that. Because I think that you look at now, like the omni-channel experience or people living on socials, brand exists, it's real, it's tangible. And your how you, I guess, translate that brand across the different platforms. Like, like exactly like you said, like I, I go on a website when I want to know either what they're doing about them. I want to know a little bit more information that I don't find across their different social platforms, but the brand stuff, like you, like you said, I'm, I've already made the decision. I'm going to buy it or not. Cause I've, I've liked, I've liked four of their Instagram posts or I've waited for something to come out or I've watched give their it to YouTube. me easy. Give it to me yeah. easy. You know, I've watched the YouTube. I'll just, sign I'll, up. It's there. I can just click it and it's in mine. It's here in seven days. Bang. Done. It makes sense, doesn't it? When you really, when it really comes down to it, it's all just common sense, isn't it? And just, and, and just putting yourself in that position of, of the, the consumer or the customer and just what's easy for me, what do I like? You know what I mean? What, what do I like in an experience? That's a, it is a fundamental shift though, yeah, so compared to what find, it was. You'll find very okay. few, few brands though that have actually gone out and asked their customers, what do they want? Yeah. Very few. They'll design what they think they need rather than what the customer actually wants. Can you go real direct with that too? Like, do you, do you just like put out surveys and stuff like that? Or how, how does it operate for you? Like how, or just different experiments? Um, no, so we will go to so the B2B space is the easiest, right? Cause you can literally go and interview their clients, right? What do you need? What do you want? You know, how do I stop you sending faxes and use this bloody thing, right? Um, going and talking to customers, um, some of the worst customers. So, so what brands will do, is when they go and do customer interviews, they'll go and interview their most loyal customers. It's like, that's the dumbest thing you could possibly do because they were going to buy off you regardless, right? You could, you, you could put the whole thing on autopilot and, and you, you'd get a positive affirmation for every answer. The other thing they'll do is they'll go and ask their wives and their girlfriends and their mum, right? What do you think? And they'll give you positive affirmation back, right? So you've actually got to go and look for the negatives, right? Um, so we've done stuff before where we've gone out to a selected group of clients. Um, the best ones are the ones that have stopped purchasing, right? So you can see that, right, this guy 12 months ago was buying once every three months, hasn't bought for 12 months. Let's hit that dude up, right? And we'll give you a $10 voucher, uh, come onto our beta site and give us some feedback on that. So you can do that. And those guys will be pretty terse and rough, you know? Um, and that's what you want. But there's also that human nature of where people gravitate towards all that positive feedback. And it's like, my girlfriend's girlfriend said she loves it. And it's like, well, she was never going to tell you she hated it. Do you know what I mean? She was never going to tell you that, right? Um, so always got to hunt for the, um, for the genuine negative stuff as well. And then once you've done it, it's a constant measurement, right? Constant, constant measurement. Um, one of the biggest things we see now is... Um, uh, companies misattributing where conversions happen from, right? So what, what you'll see is that Facebook will tell you that pretty much anyone that looked at Facebook was the reason they purchased off your site. Google will tell you anyone that used Google was the reason they purchased off your site. Um, and basically, if you've had a touch point there, even if it was scrolled through for half a second, they'll claim that as a look through conversion, right? So but one of the simplest tests that that we will do and it's so simple is you just ask on people's um thank you page when they've when they've purchased why did you buy from us you know um what was the last thing you were doing before you purchased this right it's like oh i actually bought it because i saw i saw this on instagram right now yeah i did use google right and that's how i came to your website but it had nothing to do with my actual journey it's just that i had to use the internet um so getting your attribution right and really trying to understand that data that's really key because um, otherwise every every marketing platform will tell you that they're smashing it for you, you know? metrics that matter you need to find the ones that matter to you you do but you also need to rationalize them 
um, and you also need to make sure that you are um, fundamentally understanding the reason why that platform is giving you that data, right? Every data wants to tell you that they made the conversion because they want you to spend more money there, right? No platform wants to tell you that they're failing. Um, so trying to get real deep in, into that con consumer understanding is pretty important. It's bloody hard though. What are the key, what are the key metrics that you like to look at? So if you're trying to work with a brand and they've sort of their main, their main goal is around growth. Um, what would you look for? What, what are some of the metrics that you automatically go in and go, Hey, we need to sort of suss out what's going on here. Yeah. So fundamentally we only use one KPI for all of our clients, which is revenue. Um, everything has to come down to revenue. Um, there is too much uh, stuff that happens in the industry, which is what we, we set out to break, which was hiding behind false KPIs that had no relevance to the business. You know? um, and look, this is how you were old school supposed to run digital, right? Which is that you go and hire a search agency, a marketing agency, a brand agency, a commerce agency, right? And what actually happens through that is that you've kind of broken up your funnel into all of these sliced tranches where no one can be accountable for the whole throughput of that. So your SEO guys will be telling you about share of voice, right? And number of SERPs and all that kind of stuff. Your marketing team will be telling you about ROAS and your CPMs, right? Um, your commerce team will be telling you about conversion rates. Your tech team will be telling you about load times, right? And uptimes and that kind of stuff. None of those actually matter unless you've got revenue, right? Um, now, when you break down e-commerce, there's only three metrics that actually matter, right? Which is traffic, um, conversion rates, and average order value. That is your revenue. You times those three numbers together, that's your revenue, right? So what tends to happen with clients is that they will start to focus on one of those metrics, right? Now, I can personally, anyone listening, I can change one of those metrics for you probably in a heartbeat really quickly, but it won't change your business, right? So if you want to increase your conversion rates on your site and your only thing you're being measured on is your conversion rates, just go and block all traffic from Russia and China, right? You'll eliminate 30% of your traffic and you'll have a 50% increase in conversion rate because you've taken the shit traffic off the top, right? If your metric is only to traffic, start running ads on your brand name, right? And you'll, get, and you'll, you'll pick up some free traffic for that because that, that will include, that will grow your ROAS as a metric. Because you're then basically saying, right, I've already searched for Supreme. I'm now going to target the word Supreme because that's my most qualified customer, right? Have you added value? I don't know. I think the brand added the value in that one, right? Um, if you want to increase your average order value, right, you can actually put stuff in there which makes it really hard to make small purchases, right? So if I put a $20 shipping fee on there, I'll cancel any order under 100 bucks, pretty much, right? Now, you'll have lost revenue, but I will have increased your average order value, right? So the key is that if you look at metrics in isolation, you don't actually change your business, right? You have to look at all of those blend, blended metrics together. Um, and that's where nearly every brand makes mistakes is that they, they'll show you this graph of increased conversion rate and say, right, can you map that against your revenue? Revenue's flat, right? Because you actually have your traffic in there as well. Got to keep all three pieces in play, man. And is there a priority list, like in terms of that, like what you'd hit hit up first, or it's all different to dependent it, to what the client is? It's different. It's different for every client. I'd say the biggest trend we're we're actually seeing now, and and we've got a couple of these in, in play at the moment, where their metrics aren't actually online growth, right? What their metrics are is that they really, really suddenly understood what omnichannel means, right? So we've got a couple of um, big homeware brands, you know, where you're selling flooring and tiles and stuff like that where I understand that this is an educational platform. And if I invest in this right platform, I've got people doing discovery, becoming a lot more educated, and I'm driving much more traffic in store. So your conversion is book an appointment, and then my rates of people coming through store is increasing. And then they're looking more and more as to how can I use that digital in-store, right? So we've got stuff we're doing for clients where you can, um, you know, from your website, you can scan a QR code and it adds that product to your wish list building little kiosks in store, right? Um, uh, having the ability to go around a furniture store, build an entire quote out for all these pieces that I want, and then forward that quote directly into the point of sale for the sales rep. Now, all of that has used e-commerce, but it didn't drive any immediately attainable revenue, but it drove macro revenue. So what's happened here is that you used to have all of your brands would see 
and this is when you know CFOs were driving companies, that e-commerce was fundamentally purely understood by what was the channel revenue that that drove, right? And it was very much looking at all your pillars. I've got my, my physical stores, I've got my wholesale, I've got my distribution, and I've got my online. I've got four pillars of, of revenue. What you're now seeing is that blending of all those together and that digital is my wrapper that goes around all of those, right? So regardless of whether that digital is an AdWords or an Instagram post or an e-commerce e website, you know, we know that, you know, over three quarters of purchases that happen in the world now are influenced by digital, right? So you have to be playing in that space to make it work. So look, there's no one answer to that, Lucky. It, it, it's got to be, what are the drivers for that business? Are they a pure play? Are they just, you know, and where are they at their journey? Are they hustling for market share or are they actually hustling for margin? Um, are they in a big macro economy where they just need share of voice, right? Um, and there's been a lot of guys where we've taken big flash websites and reduced it all back down. So no, you need something super simple and we're going to focus everything on search, right? Like we, we turned around a flooring brand by, by, by doing that. It was actually taking commerce off the website, right? We took it off the website and we focused all their energy on in driving product understanding and booking appointments in store. Because you try and buy carpet on the internet, you're going to get it wrong, right? It's not going to work, right? And so instead of, instead of trying to fix a problem which wasn't a problem a client wanted solving, they still wanted to go in and feel the carpet. No one's going to buy carpet without actually feeling Makes sense. And touching it, right? Unless you're doing up a, 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 a do up. So it's getting deep in, into that psyche and there's no one, one shoe fits all, right? I think it's, I, I, I like that. I like the fact that we, we had a chat to, um, last week we spoke to Sean Ellis, the dude who uh, was the growth marketer for Dropbox and Eventbrite and a few other things. And he was talking about like a growth equation. Exactly what you're talking about is you have to understand what metrics they have that you are interested in for your business, but also understand the impact and, the, and the, the playoff that they have with each other. So like you said, if you, met, you move one needle, it might fuck the other needle up. So you got to understand right. what, what is your equation of metrics that go into whatever your outcome is for your business. I thought that like, was really you, you know, in, in, in that omni-channel world, if you take it back to normal B2C, fashion, footwear, um, your best clients shop across all your channels, right? There is no version of this of, I want you just to go in store and then spend the rest of your life on the internet, right? I need you going back in store. I need you meeting my team, understanding my culture, understanding my brand, having that store experience. But I want you to do your second and your third purchase online. And then I'm going to give you a coupon to come back in store again. Well, the boys are culture kings, right? They get it. It's an in-store experience, but they crush it online as well. And it's that duopoly, right? You've got to make sure that everyone is still staying in that space. And you haven't just commoditized the product because I've got Nikes at $5 cheaper, right? Um, got to have that balance. What have you seen in the biggest changes since COVID's hit? What are sort of the trends that you're noticing in the market? Uh, so, you, you know, after everyone just um, kind of shit the bed for a month um, and just did a <laughs> massive panic, um, we have, uh, we've probably seen around about a 30% growth in the whole business since then for us. Um, we have seen the appetite for boards to invest amplified dramatically. Um, very little pushback on price from what we're p pushing to market. So, you know, you, we've got guys that said, look, I've got a hundred grand and I want this. And it's like, it's going to cost you 300. Okay. Okay. Go. Um, and, and it's a case of, Oh, okay. All right. Um, Sick. great. Yep. Um, boards not complaining. Um, the, there's obviously a very, a desire to move a lot quicker and that's pretty hard. Um, you know, when we've got increased demand and everyone wants, you know, six months worth of work turned around in three and they ask, why can't you do that? And it's like, well, cause we're doing 20 others at the same time as well. Um, I think you've seen a lot of guys projects and things that they thought were risky before they will now just take a punt at and they realize that it doesn't actually hurt. You know, it's like, well, you know, let's have a, let's have a crack at, um, video styling, you know, never tried it before thought it would be really risky, found every reason to find out why it wouldn't work. Now, now ready to take that on. So I think what it's done is it's forced people's hands to do all the cool shit we were talking about three years ago. They're now coming to us and asking us to do that. Whereas we've been telling them to be doing that. Um, appetite for investment is fundamentally there. Uh, 
there's that genuine understanding what we talked about around that wrapper, right? And it's not a separate pillar, you know? So um, one of the conversations we always have with multi-store brands is, why is it you're willing to go and spend a million bucks in opening up in Melbourne Central, but you wanna kind of do online for 50, 50K, but you want twice the outcome from what you're willing to invest there. Um, and there's that realization that you've got to spend good money to get good people. Um, and there is genuinely a resource issue in my market in Australia and New Zealand. There's not enough good people at e-commerce e e at the moment in, in the market. And what that's going to do is it's fundamentally going to push pricing up and the access to great people is going to become tougher because it'll take the market two to three years to retrain those people when to catch up, you know, as people gravitate out of other more media digital kind, kind, kind of roles into that space. Um, I'd say the other thing that um, I think is really exciting um, is people looking to do digital in different ways now, right? And that, that risk appetite, right? You know, so when we talk about doing things like barcode scanning and kiosks, right? Um, and, you know, uh, um, transactional social, conversational commerce, you know, um, just the willingness to experiment, that's genuinely changed. Um, and as I say, the conversations moved foot. We used to have to take it to the client. They're now coming to us, you know. In nearly every RFP we receive now, there'll be a section in there, of um, future inspiration ideation, give us some cool shit, right? Which never used to be in there, right? It was all very, very transactional numbers driven, you know? Show me an example of where you doubled ROI for this client, right? Now it's, can you do WeChat, you know? Um, how'd you do this? How'd you do that? So um, just the openness, man, it's just the openness. Um, and it's been brilliant for us. Um, and we can throw more cool shit at the market as well. That's exciting. It is, people, it is. People are now listening. It's like you don't have to force things down their throat. I, I think this, the whole COVID, it's been a massive leveler, but it's, it's also struck the fear in a lot of people that business is going to go under. If they don't experiment, they don't innovate, they're going to die as much as you don't want to talk about disruption and all the buzzwords that come along with it. But it, it's a real thing. People recessions are, scared. are actually, you know, recessions are bloody hard, right? But there's always positivity that comes out of it. Um, and it resets everyone. It stops those laggards that have got lazy and just dominated the market. Um, and you know, the internet democratizes everything for everyone. You know, you can get up and running real quick and attack new markets and new opportunities at a speed and cost that's never been available in our history before. Um, and whilst you've seen, you know, the old dot-com bubble bursts and all, all, all these kind of things, I think e-commerce is going to be the biggest winner out of this whole, this whole process over the next two or three years. hundred percent, especially once they all those 5g towers come through and internet's uh, as quick as blinking, you know, blinking. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, perfect. I purchased this. <laughs> <laughs> when Huawei owns you, that's it. <laughs> I thought, I thought about it. Now it's at my doorstep. How good's that? <laughs> Elon Musk has got his chip in the back of the brain. You know, it's scary stuff He's coming up. In a pig, hasn't he? Was that what I, I, I skimmed an article that said he'd put a chip in a pig's brain. Yeah. It's plenty going has on. He? Yeah. He just does what he wants. Doesn't he? Neuralink. It's his company, Neuralink, whatever it is. It's I, He's just a loose unit. Oh. You've got to love him though, you know? The world needs people like that, right? That are just um, switching things up. Um, and for all the crazy shit he comes out with, with flamethrowers and, you know, pig brain implants, <laughs> um, there's got to be some value somewhere. Routine, don't have one. Um, I, I don't read. Um, I don't really follow anyone or anything. Um, I kind of got this weird belief system that the more that you're engaging, this is dumb because we're on a podcast, but the more you're engaging with other people's content, the more you're kind of being influenced by who they are. And if you want to kind of live in that contrarian view of the world um, and find new places to play in, all that content's ever going to tell you is what is past, right? No one can, you know, um, and there's a danger there that you end up becoming influenced by and structuring towards other people as opposed to your own unique thoughts and and perspectives um so i don't know i don't think it's anything special man it's just um it's just what works for me dude i think i think it is special no i think it is special because a lot of people say they do this they do that but in reality man it, it's not like that at all is it like you being honest with yourself it's it's getting up whenever it's doing the things and um i'll tell know, you what i do do though is i buy books and then don't read them <laughs> <laughs> they look, they look good really on the shelf though they look good on the shelf yeah 100 yeah. 
that content I, I, consumption I have is every interesting. best intention. Uh, the only actually, um, the only um, I do listen to um, a bit of the old Audible when I because I do like the four hour drive to Auckland back and forwards, and I love the stuff written by Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, man, um, that lies. So, so just more on that sort of psychology of life rather than a Tony Robbins yeehaw of life. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so I, I guess the more and more I've spent doing this, the more I've understood that we work in a relationships business and the understanding of psychology is probably the most important value to any entrepreneur out there. You know? hey, I was just going to say that there's a book called Great Thinkers and it, it's by the School of Life and it's really westernized all the great philosophers all around the world and it just makes it really easy to consume and, and that's the greatest thing. I think the psychology, like you were saying, like how they think about the ideas in the world and that it's come from their thought, like their brain, no one else, you know, and it's like, well, it just makes sense, you know what I mean? Like it's just that way of living and it's been around for a long time where you just don't so, consume as much. So he, he's got one book, which is um, David and Goliath or Defeating Giants or something like that by Malcolm Gladwell. The first chapter of that is probably the first book I've read, which helped me understand what was going on in my head. Do you know what I mean? Mm, yeah. Um, and and the, the, the whole thesis of, of that book was actually Goliath had no chance. David was always going to win. Right. But it was breaking that down into accuracy and agility um, and you know throwing different things at the market that it wasn't expecting um and yeah so you know if you re want to read anything that's cool oh mate love it uh, the, the, though. <laughs> <laughs> the content consumption one that's an interesting take because you we've spoken to some people who just they've got their routine down packed they love absorbing absorbing books they listen to podcasts and, and so others similar to you, yourself todd is that they don't listen to much other stuff they don't take much stuff in and i think there's a different phase I watch absolute crap on social to be brutally, brutally honest, Rob, I'll be watching UFC highlights rather than listening to Tony Robbins. Um, 100%, man. I think at the end of the day, truth, YouTube highlights, yep. NBA highlights. At the end of the day, I switch off. I go, I've done my thinking. I've done my learning. Whatever I do now, I need my brain to just chill out. What can I put on that'll just make me just sit here like a zombie for a little bit? Hard. <laughs> I wish I could tell you that, you know, that, that there was this, you know, amazing, perfect LinkedIn world of where I'd, I'd consume a book every five days and that made me the man I am. But I don't know. I just, I just do what I need to do. Right. Um, and Love that. it comes out all right so far. Well, mate, I'm, I'm pumped that you've come on and had a chat. It's been so great to meet you. I like, I like how you think you're, it's, it's sick. You're a unique cat. It's great. It's great. You, you definitely your take and perspective on things is a lot different than, um, a few of the other guests we've had so it's been a well-rounded view of the e-com world and how you operate and how you get people on board and you're doing some amazing things at overdose and yes, we're, we're bloody pumped uh, to see what's to come because man you're talking about the growth and all that sort of stuff it's got me g'd up mate yeah look um we 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 refer to our style as playing heads up do you know what i mean and i think that's um you know a bit of a sporting analogy you know but it's that quarterback stance right of someone snapped the ball you don't know what those formations are going to are going to look like and you play what you see um and i think if you have too much structure and too much process in how you want to think and what the world has to look like um and i see you know i coach quite a few other agency owners and they they define a destination and they get besotted with with this destination and i have to get there um we've got a rough idea of where we want to get to and a kind of view of what the path should look like um, but you just got to play it heads up and, and adjust every day um, and open every single door. You know, we will go and speak to every client. Um, I will interview every candidate that applies for a role because you find some absolute weapons of people that didn't quite conform. Do you know what I mean? Um, and it's those odd kooks that end up being your best assets, man. Um, and there's clients where we still work with today that, you wouldn't have taken a second look at them, but then when you actually get to talk to them and you, and then you understand that his dad owns this company and his sister runs this one and he's actually just exited that and he's got 2 million of source funding. You're like, yeah, damn, let's go. Um, yeah. You know? Um, so heads up, man. It's it. I genuinely think it's the best way to do business. Um, but it requires a, a lot of mental energy to reset every day and just punch, 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 punch all the time. Um, and that's what knackers me at. Yeah. No, it's hard, mate. It's exhausting. Waking up, putting out fires, mate. Living in Thinking uncertainty. Thinking is tiring. Yeah. yeah, it is, mate. It is. I 100%. dance around the house. I pump the tunes on and have a bit of thinking time. And 
turn the phone off. You know what I mean? It's important to just veg out and, and have your oh, own. You've got, to have, you, you've got to have that playlist, right? Of um, the tunes that, that just get you going, you know. What's on yours? Oh, I'd say you, you've got to forgive me because I'm 42 years old, but I was a cool cat back in the day. But uh, <laughs> I'd throw on a bit of Killing in the Name of and a bit of Rage Against the Machine. Oh, mate, you're get, speaking my language, yes. Just to get really going. Um, yeah, and there's some old school stuff of, uh, you know, just some... Um, some old Kiwi bands? Surely. No, I'm a pom. So I grew up in, in South East London. I moved over oh. here about 12, 14 years ago. Yeah. Oh, um, so I grew up listening to uh, more of your Britpop stuff, right? More of your kind of Oasis kind of gear. Oh, mate, there's nothing wrong with Oasis. Britpop. Yeah. Lock, Lock thinks he's the music man. I do think I am. Well, compared to you, I am. You got no. This guy likes Akon and Chingy. You're kidding. I've, I've never. Kidding. I don't like. I, that's not true. You can't say one, that. The other one that gets me going is if you're getting some old school Massive Attack. You ever heard of Massive Attack? Oh, like, mate, yes. Yeah. yes. Some real old school Massive Attack gets you pretty. Hey. Just kind of gets you angry, angry, but yeah. it's like, All right, I'm gonna can take this on now. Here it comes. Mate. You're right. You you were a cool dude, mate. You you, you listen to good bands. It's mate. all faded once you have four people. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, that's awesome. Dress like I'm 12, but um. Oh I've mate, 30 years. I'm, oh, I'm nothing. There's nothing wrong with a hoodie and a hat. There that's, you go. That's our that, stuff uniform. <laughs> that's it. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, course, loved it. Absolutely loved it. Yeah, this is an unreal chat. You've you've blown my mind. All right, boys. We'll leave it to you. Mate, how good was that episode? One of my favourites, Rob. One of my favourites. Big bad Todd Welling. We're very very lucky and grateful to be continuing to do this podcast and having all you amazing people listen and share your feedback and your learnings. Um, we're next episode. We've got a bit of a treat for you. Yeah. Well, you yeah, you are in for a treat because it's no guests. It's just us. So tune out now, probably if you, if you, <laughs> if you don't rate episode, us. Yeah. yeah. Well, if, yeah, you're probably going to unsubscribe we, now. We better see you there, but we hopefully see you there. Oh yeah.